That intro sounds so epic, doesn't it? All right, it's going to be an epic sermon. At least I pray it will be. Turn it in your Bibles to Genesis 29. We're going to cross over into chapter 30 today, starting in verse 31 of chapter 29, and then going into chapter 30, verse 24. I was telling my community group this past week, um, every time I come up to preach, it's as if I have the hardest passages to find anything that's good in. I'm like, who is the one that set the schedule for preaching in this church? And then I, I thought about it, like, it's me. And the crazy thing is I gave away all the great, you know, there's some good passages, like Bible, you know, like great Bible passages in the story of Jacob. And it just turns out that I gave all of them away. I mean, the very best one is, uh, is obviously Jacob wrestling with God. I gave that to Saju. Saju, we'll be preaching that in a few weeks. Uh, and so we're left here today uh, just trying to get some crumbs of good, uh, of good news out of what really is a difficult story to, to read and to get through. And so, uh, again, this is a long passage. I'm going to read almost a whole chapter's worth of the Bible. And I do think it's important for us to get the gist of it. So bear with me. Break your Bibles open. The words won't be on the screen. But I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, all the way through chapter 30, verses 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name shall be called Levi. And she, she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Verse 9, When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my, my, my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then, may he, uh, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, 
you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you for a, a, the day, a beautiful day, a day that the psalmist reminds us you've given us, and we are called to rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we're not only uh, rejoicing in the day, we're rejoicing that this is a day of salvation. God, I pray that uh, these words, these difficult words, even in the Old Testament, would uh um, that we would be able to conjure up uh, even a, a bit of hope from it, that we would see ourselves in the mirror of Scripture and that you would reveal our hearts, but more importantly, God, that you would lead us into life everlasting and do that by your gospel and your great grace. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have been in a series uh, in Genesis looking at the life of Jacob, and we're calling it Lessons of Grace and Faith. And so we're trying to extract from, uh, from, from Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, patriarchs of really the whole Bible, um, just lessons for our own selves through, through his biography. And I don't know if you were tracking very close to what I'm reading, but I mean, this, this is it's not make-believe, it's not fiction, it's not a fairy tale. I mean, this is like real life. And some of the things that we see in this text really should take us aback and almost make us double take. It's not a movie. It sounds like make-believe, but it is real life. It's as if somebody thought up the worst family situation, crumbled it all up in the same series of paragraphs, and just like, Bleh. there you go. It's like life is happening in this family, and this is what it is. This is not life gone bad. Really, it's, it's real life. This is a sad account of, of four women in the Bible. Uh, you have two daughters, Leah and Rachel, who were raised perhaps by a father that had different thoughts of what it mean, uh, what it meant to love his, his daughters, because for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, he allowed them to be married to the same man. And then you have two other ladies, servants of these first two, who were treated more like sex slaves than what they're called in the scripture, servants or, or handmaidens. And so a story like this, if we were to if we were to see this in a blog or on the internet, if we were to see this on TV, I mean, we would we would be shocked at some of this. This is like Jerry Springer-ish. I mean, this this Jerry Springer still come on TV? I don't even know. I mean, this is this is kind of beyond the the drama that you would see on Jerry Springer of a family just coming and emptying out all of their garbage onto the stage for all to see. If we were to see this in any venue that, you know, that we usually look at, in a newspaper, on TV, on the internet, we would look at these women, we would look at their situation, we would look at the man that's the, the, uh, the object of their affection and say, this, is just, this isn't just sad, it's kind of pathetic. 
we would empathize with them and the plot of, of their life. And so this isn't a fairy tale. This is like real deal Bible. It's a real life family tale, which in many ways is not very far from some of the lives that we see lived in, in our world today. Perhaps someone in this room has had a turbulent life, has had a dramatic life that's similar to what we see in the scriptures here today. There are some very sad family situations all around us, and of course, sin still wreaks its destructive power in all of our families. And it's because of that that we have to approach the scriptures um, carefully, humbly, primarily because except for the grace of God, I mean, we could be in those same those same predicaments and situations. We need to resist the temptation that many of us have of looking at particularly Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern people and thinking that their way of life was backwards, that they just didn't know that this is the way life was. This is just how it it happened, that God was sanctioning this stuff. We need to to, to not be tempted to do that because that really isn't necessarily God is not necessarily blessing all the things that are going on going on in our in our text. But this is the word of God. And so my exhortation for us is that even in this story that may seem like you come nowhere near what's going on in it. It's a, it's the word of God for you. It's 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 there for us to um, identify with individually. It's us for it's there for us to glean lessons from corporately. This is. Um, this is God's word to us, and he's giving it to us for a reason. And I think what we hopefully will see at the end is there a me- there's a message of hope here in, in this text. This, this passage has a message of great, great hope. It's a message of grace for sinners like you and like I. Uh, the passage shows us that God can make something beautiful out of everybody's life. His grace and his glory can be displayed in all of our lives. I want to. Uh, I only want to bring out two points from the text. I've got a couple of short points, but only two points. And the first point is is really the most obvious. Nothing here is okay. I don't know how you read this text, but the the truth the truth here is nothing that we're reading here is is okay. We have a tendency to read the Bible, and if we're reading the words and there's no narration or there's no critique from what we're reading, we just assume all right, that's the way it was. God is saying, okay, he's putting his stamp of approval on it, and that's the way life is. Life has to be lived. But that's not necessarily what's going on here at all. In fact, this book of Genesis would have been written by Moses, the, the scholars tell us, and he would have written it post-Exodus. So think Israel has already gone through uh, the Red Sea. They're Going a little bit through the wilderness, they're at Mount Sinai. God has already given Moses the Ten Commandments. They would have known all of that. And so if 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 this is a post-Exodus book, then the people reading this, the Israelites, would have um, they would have they would have been taken aback by the things that they're reading because they would have known in the law that everything they're reading about all this stuff with Rachel and Leah and these servant girls and even Jacob and and uh, Laban, all of this is against the law. All these things happening were things that weren't part of their normal living. And the first thing that we need to be clear about is that polygamy was not okay. It wasn't okay then, and I don't know if you heard this, it's not okay now. 
Um, the, the, the way that we should read the Old Testament is, the, is principally the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And one of the ways that we can clarify what the New Testament is saying to us is simply to turn to passages in the, the New Testament. And here's where this is cleared up. This idea of polygamy is cleared up by Jesus himself. Chapter 19 of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, verses 4 through 6, Jesus says these words. He says, uh, he answered, he's talking about divorce and he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, Three things I think the New Testament uh, tells us very pointedly about this idea of, of polygamy. The first comes from Jesus' own mouth. And what Jesus is doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament when everything was perfect. Genesis 2.24, that, 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 those words said at almost every marriage ceremony. For this reason, a, father will, uh, uh, a man will leave his, uh, his father and mother, cleave to his wife, hold fast to her, and the two will be naked and unashamed. And, and Jesus is saying, this is, the, this is the precedence for marriage in our world today. Not polygamy monogamy. Okay. He holds up monogamy as the ideal. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, it shows us the ideal for not just people, but particularly leaders in, in God's church is that they would be one woman men, that, that, that men would only have one wife. And then if we would push forward all the way to the end of the Bible, at the end of the age, we see this beautiful picture, a glorious picture in Revelation that tells us Jesus is going to return. And then accompanying his return is going to be the city coming down from heaven, a new Jerusalem coming down and out of heaven. And Jesus himself is going to be a groom coming for his bride. And it's and very simply, it's not a plural bride. It's just one bride, one husband, Jesus and his bride, the church. And that's the picture that we're supposed to see, a bride adorned for her husband. Some, uh, you know, might still argue that, well, what, what's this with all the things that we see in the Old Testament in regards to uh, patriarchs and people in the Old Testament being married to more than one woman? It seems that God is sanctioning uh, polygamy and that he's giving laws to regulate it. The truth is, there are only a few Bible verses in the whole Bible that actually speak of polygamy at all. But overall, the, the contention that, that God is trying to not necessarily regulate, but put over for Israel is what Jesus says in, in these next two, ver- two verses in Matthew uh, chapter 19. He says, they said to him, the Pharisees, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it was not so. Um, why is it that we see signs of polygamy in the scriptures? It's because Jesus tells us. It's because of our hardness of heart. Peel that back. Jesus is saying it's because of our sin. Our sin rearranges our thoughts. It, it forces us, you know, through our own wills to do things that God has not sanctioned us to do. Jesus says because of man's sinfulness. And that's why it's, it was regulated with the primary aim of protecting women, of protecting children, and making sure that they were not victimized. Because of sin in us, this is going to happen. And so God gives Israel a few laws to regulate it. And I think that's what's happening when we look at the Old Testament. We see that there aren't a lot of laws regulating polygamy, but when the Bible does talk about polygamy, 
the, the absolute clarity of it is it's talking about fairness and concern for women and protection for their children in those regulations. Just a few verses here. Exodus 21, 10 through 11. If, he takes another, if a man takes a wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things, uh, these three things for her, she shall go out for uh, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Look at a, a verse in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Long verse. Uh, be patient. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the other loved as the firstborn in the preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. Next slide. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. And then uh, the last verse that I'll show you of, of the several in the Bible is Leviticus 18, 18. And this verse says, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. There are several more verses in the Bible that, that suggest at, uh, you know, the rules to regulate polygamy, but there aren't too many, and these are the, the most clear. And I think this, this last verse in particular, verse 18 of Leviticus 18, is what's happening in this passage with Jacob and, and these women. Jacob has taken a rival wife, which according to Leviticus is, is forbidden. In fact, many Old Testament scholars would say it's not just the forbidding of, of taking more than one wife here, it's polygamy in general. Uh, this verse is outlawing pol uh, polygamy if we're reading it right. And I think what these texts are, are getting at is it doesn't matter if it's just two sisters or two, two estranged women, polygamy is wrong. And primarily it's wrong because it creates, a, it creates a breach in the family. It potentially destroys it. It's going to lend to discord. It brings a contending woman into the family. And so for you men who are aspiring to get married and for you men that are already married in, in the room, I mean, you already know this. Sometimes it's hard to contend with one woman, isn't it? Can you imagine Jacob's predicament contending with not just one or two, but four? I mean, that's, that's, that's like painful. What exactly, uh, that's what exactly we see fleshed out here. And so here's, here's the context. Israel reading this post-Exodus, they, they would have been a little alarmed at what was, what was going on. They would have been horrified at what they're reading, that the patriarch from whom their lineage derived was involved in all this kind of stuff. They would have been repulsed by the story of Jacob violating God's law left and right, the polygamy of it all, and the way that Rachel and Leah and the two servant girls are treated here. And so polygamy was not okay. But here's the second thing. Uh, favoritism is not okay. we got to back up to Genesis uh, 29:30 to actually, to actually see this. Here's what verse 30 says of chapter 29. So Jacob went into Rachel also. This is them, uh, her, him marrying her. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The emphasis that I want to put on this verse is, is the, the middle phrase. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. As we get into this account here, um, it, it's kind of hard to, um, to read this with not getting a little bit sad 
for, for Leah because she's definitely, she gets the short end of the stick here. Um, it would be fair to say that she, that Rachel is loved more than Leah, but probably the right way to view this is that Leah is not loved at all. There's a, uh, the, the Hebrew in, in verse 30 uh, actually doesn't bring out this idea that she's hated, but we see it unfold again in verses 31 and 33 of that same chapter. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He didn't love her at all. He opened her womb. In verse 33, she conceived again, this is Leah, and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated. She's talking to the Lord, telling him, like, my husband don't even like me. Why you got me in this predicament? She's hated. She's not loved at all. And and that's a hard predicament to be in. I mean, think of the hell that, that is Jacob's family right now. Right now he only has... Two wives, two servants, and he's got a favorite wife that he's showing preferential treatment to. And he has an unfavorite wife that's having all these kids that he does not love. And she's crying out for some sign of affection and she's not getting it. Leah was hated. And the interesting thing in our text is that we can see what's going on in Leah's life as she names each one of these successive kids. And so the first kid she named after she has her first son, is named Reuben. And we learn why she called him Reuben in verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben means see a son. It sounds like those words in Hebrew, see a son. And it's as if Leah is trying to get her husband's attention. Of course, a son, a male, a firstborn male in this kind of society, almost kind of like it is now. I mean, what man doesn't want to have a son? And definitely a son first of all his kids. Um, and that son obviously was going to be the, the firstborn. He would be the inheritor of the, the blessing and the promise. He would be the one that would be entrusted to lead the family when the, the head of the family died and went on. And so she she has this son and... Um, and she has him saying, well, uh, God is going to look on my affliction. She feels, I mean, she's not only troubled, she feels like she's in prison because she's not loved by her husband. And she's thinking that having a boy is going to alleviate that. It doesn't. And so she has a second son, verse 32, verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon sounds like heard in Hebrew. She's talking to the Lord. She's praying, having a conversation, saying, Lord, I'm in a house that I'm hated and I'm having sons. That's not even helping me. And she has a third son, verse 34. And again, she conceived and bore a son. And now this time my husband will be attached to me because I am born him. I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi sounds like attached. She's giving, she's chronicling the, the travesty of her life through the names of her sons. And we're going to see this perpetuate in some of the, some of the other kids that are born as well. And, and what she's feeling right now, we don't know how long this is. It could have been, I mean, she could have been having like three babies in two years, which would be like crazy, right? But she just wants some loving and affection and attached. She wants to feel a normal attachment to her, to her husband. And then she has another son, verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name 
Judah, and then she ceased bearing. We're chronicling Rachel's life through the, the naming and the births of her sons, and she, she has this anguish. I mean, life is turmoil. I'm having all these boys. It's a boy that you want, right, Jacob? And his affection for her, his love for her, just like being a, a husband to a wife, is not happening. And so by the time she has her fourth son, her disposition changes. She calls his name Judah, which means praise. So she has, she's decided, all right, so this is my lot in life. I, I, I'm going to receive this, Lord, and I'm going to praise you that it, it's not Jacob that's going to be my salvation. You're my salvation. You are my Lord, and that's how I'm going to name my son. And so what do we learn from this, this little passage here, this little section of this narrative? I, I think most vividly, favoritism is not okay. And, and if you look, if you think back to Jacob's life, I mean, this just almost doesn't even make sense, right? Because Jacob is the unfavored son of, of Isaac. And Jacob has already lived this life that he's putting his own wife through. He's raised in a family where, we don't know if he was unloved, but he definitely was unfavored over his brother Esau. And so you'd think that he'd be more sensitive to that, that, that he would see and sort of sense that his wife feels unloved, that, that he would sense that she's starved for affection and that he was the one that was supposed to give it to her. Uh, we see him committing the same sins that, that his dad committed to him. And I think this should be a warning to us. Uh, in the reform camp, we don't teach generational sins that if you come from a, a family of alcoholics or wife beaters or smokers or if, if cancer is in multiple generations in your family, that you're automatically going to get it because there's, it's in your DNA. We don't teach that. And we don't teach it primarily because the Bible says everyone is responsible for their own sin. And then if we believed, uh, if, we, if we held true to every generational sin, then it negates the gospel. The gospel says that there's no sin that I can commit for which I can't not, cannot be forgiven for. That's the gospel. But there is something about kids being exposed to their family sins and it sticking. And so um, there's, there's two words in that. Firstly, kids don't make the mistake of being cocky and arrogant and saying, I'll never say what my parents say. I'll never do what my parents do. Um, Larissa's mom visited us this last week for Jonathan's graduation and she, you know, she's gone now. But we were sitting down at, at dinner. I don't know what we were doing, just talking around the dinner table. And Zoe comes up with this phrase that, there, I mean, nobody but Larissa's mom would have said that. And it was like Larissa's mom was from Bassett, Virginia, the, the furniture town, like country, like only a couple stop signs, you know, like <laughs> that kind of a town. And it was like one of these country old person sayings. And Zoe says it. I mean, Larissa not it's a saying that Larissa not even say. And so, uh, I mean, Parents, kids are listening to you, and the things that they hear you saying, but also the things that they see you doing, some of those things stick. And so kids, don't say you're not going to say or do what your parents are saying and doing, because sometimes we see our parents sinning, and we end up sinning like our parents. Let the church say amen. Uh, here's the other thing. Parents, you got to, I mean, it, it's real. We can cause havoc in our kids' lives from those, not just the things that we say, but the sins that we commit. 
And so we have to rely on God's grace in the life of our kids that they will go and and, and live fruitful, joy-filled lives, loving and serving Jesus. But, but you got to acknowledge there are some things in your life, sinful things, that you have a propensity to pass on to your kids, and you need to be prayerful about them. All that to say, I mean, this is a sobering situation going on in Jacob's house, isn't it? it it's sobering. He's passed on the sin of his father to his his wife, and definitely some of his kids are going to be jacked up, right? Because we're going to we read the rest of the story. Um, Jacob is is doing the very same. He's making his wife suffer from the very same way that he suffered from from favoritism. There's one more point here, and it's, it's, it's slavery. Slavery is not okay. We're going to cross over into chapter 30. Slavery is not okay. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in a place of God who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said to him, verse three, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so verse four, she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. Let's get down to verse nine. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as his wife. And of course, in both of those instances, these servant girls end up having two kids each, both boys. So the handmaidens, Rachel and Leah, Bilhah and Zilpah, were, uh, I mean, we see that they become kind of like bartering objects um, for the women who the scriptures call Jacob's wives so that they could out, I mean, they're, they're like challenging each other. You, I'm, I'm going to have more kids through my servant. I'm going to have more kids through my servant too. And this is, I mean, totally against anything they could obviously object to. Uh, Zilpah and, and, and Bila are, are really servants to a master. The Bible uses the term wife for both of them. But in Hebrew, that word could mean female, it could mean woman or wife. And I think Moses here, the narrator, is using the word wife because they, they're, they're in the house, they're servants, they would go on to bear children for Jacob. And so that's the natural term for them. But can you see that they're really nothing close to what a wife would, would be? This is, this is not their lot in life that they are, are wives. They're, they're given, they're not even on the same footing with, with Rachel and Leah. It's as if that if they're a wife, they get conjugal visits whenever Leah and Rachel want to want them to have another kid for them, which is no life at all. And this is the thing going on in this patriarchal family. And it's akin, I think, to slavery in every respect. There are some scholars that wouldn't that wouldn't suggest this. The word slavery doesn't appear in this text, obviously. But uh, if you if you don't have any say when when someone tells you what to do and, and particularly when a man can come into you and have sex with you and have a child. I mean, that, that's kind of like slavery, right? Bilhah and Zilpah against their wills are having to do unimaginable things with the master of the house. And that's not OK. All right. So that's the first point. Nothing here is OK. Here's the second point, And I'll be quick about this one. Nothing is actually different. We live in a world where a lot of this stuff has not changed. Polygamy, favoritism, slavery, all these problems exist today, and they're still not okay. And the 
the, the thing, the problem for us as, as modern Christians is to, is to look at this and think that we're above these sins, that this is Old Testament, this is 4,000 years ago, these are naive, backward people, that's just the way it was, God sanctioned it so, and so we're beyond that. And we might think that particularly with this very next section, which is kind of strange. Look at verse 14, there's some mysticism and some superstition going on here in the last part of our text. Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went on and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Leah said to, uh, Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your, man, your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you would have taken away my husband? Would you also take my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, hey, you got to come in to me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so Jacob did his, his conjugal duty. He laid with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore us, Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And so mandrakes, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know what I'm talking about. But it's I mean, it's a real life plant, not just in the Bible days, right now and today. It's found in the Mediterranean. I'm, I'm told it's beautiful, like purple and white flowers. It creates berries on it that are that are yellow. Um, interesting thing about uh, mandrakes is that it's a it's a root. OK. And the superstition of it is uh, the root looks kind of like human form. And if you pull the root out of the dirt, it kind of shrieks. When you pull it up. And so if you've seen the, the second episode of Harry Potter, if you if you read the books, remember that scene where one of those kids like faints because the mandrake is like, ah, it was it's, uh, all right. So I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but my daughter is. And she had to explain all this to me. So thank you, Zoe. All right. So there's some stupid superstition here. But but here's the main contention that the, the mandrake is considered an aphrodisiac. And I don't know how to explain that to y'all. And so the suggestion here is Rachel is she's so desperate to have a kid that she's like, all right, this thing is like supposed to like make me want to do it and make, make my husband want to do it. Give me some mandrakes. And that's what she's conjuring Leah to do for her. But I hear, here's, the, here's the bigger point. I think it's easier for us to, to look at this and say, oh, this is like crazy. This is like backward. That stuff don't even work anyway. But I mean, think about the, think about the land that we live in and the times that we live in. We got stuff in our world that's like a modern mandrake. Men, have you ever watched the news or a sporting event and not seen a Viagra or a Cialis commercial? That's a modern day mandrake. We have all this scientifically um, crafted uh, supplements that are supposed to make us more manly, if you know what I'm talking about. And a lot of it's not even FDA approved and we take it. And I ain't talked to y'all about whether you're taking it or not, so I don't know if it's working. But I mean, that's that's just the that's just that's the society that we live in. And then we have the God look at this and say, like, they're just stupid. They're backward. We're doing the same thing, except we're we're paying people. I mean, Rachel paid in, in a conjugal visit, right? But we're paying like real money. And this 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 manhood supplement industry is like a billion dollar multi-billion dollar industry that we bought into. And so nothing is different. Nothing is different with slavery. In fact, it's far worse today. 
Slavery in the ancient Near East, uh, a woman in these conditions, a servant slave girl would have had a roof over her head. She would have been sustained by the family that she lived with. And even though she wouldn't have had privileges to do what she wanted to when she wanted to do it, at least she would have had the sustenance of life taken care of and her life would not have been in danger. That's not the case here today. I mean, think of the worldwide sex slave trade and the major cities in America like D.C. And I mean, even the small towns that are are kidnapping young girls from their families and those girls are being sold into the sex slave industry. One of the saddest days in my life was I was a pastor on staff in North Carolina and it was all over the news. This young five year old girl had been sold into the sex slave industry by her mom. Police are searching all over town for her, and uh, the police are on the tails of this of the, the guy that the mom had given the girl to. And days later, they find this young, beautiful five-year-old girl dumped over in the side of the uh, of the, the uh, a wood line, dead. We had her funeral in our church. Three thousand people came. It was it was a beautiful uh, honoring of uh, of her life. But what a tragic circumstance for our for our city and, and and this is prevalent not just in that little city it's prevalent all over our world i'm told that the super bowl is one of the the highest uh sex slave trafficking events uh around the world and these girls are sold into um places where they're going to be abused and and drugged and literally used to their death the sex slave industry is far worse today than it was in, in that day. In the same vein, I think we, we scrunch our noses at uh, polygamy and pigam, uh, polygamy and, and, and bigamy uh, in the Bible. Yet, I mean, we live in a culture where consensual sex with multiple partners for, I mean, far, far less uh, commitment is, is happening every day. We live in a culture where the sex revolution and the breakdown of, of, more, of sexual morality in our culture um, actually makes this account look kind of tame. And so I don't need to keep going here, but I think the, the reality here is that nothing that we see in this text is better today. We see it continuing. And the, the reality is this is nothing but the Bible unfolding for us the, the human condition. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden disobeyed God, man has continually chosen to receive and live by our own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And as Romans 1 tells us, what does God say? He's like, go ahead. He gives us over to the, the lust of our minds and the lust of our flesh. And he says, go ahead and do what you want to do. And here's what I think. I think the Bible is a mirror. It's supposed to be a mirror. And particularly here. So if you get nothing out of this text... It's, it's giving you a mirror. You know, somehow, uh, sometimes how you, you wake up in the morning and like you're feeling rough. Like this morning, I woke up feeling rough because I got a cold and I was actually having hot sweats before the service. I was like, man, this is like rough, rough, rough. All right. So you wake up one of those mornings, um, you got bad hair, you got red eyes and oh, your breath stinks and you can't get your makeup. Ain't, I mean, nothing is working right. And and you look in the mirror and, and you immediately look in the mirror, and what do you want to do? I was like, oh, my God, i got to, like, step over and put my makeup on, like, with blindfolded, right? Instead, the Bible is inviting us to don't look away. 
It's saying, look in the mirror. Because when you look in the mirror, God's going to unpack what's beyond the mirror so that you can see your heart. That's what scripture does for us. And we're invited to look in the mirror, but also look into our hearts as it's being exposed. We're invited to here search our own hearts. And here's the question. Are any of us really even better than than this patriarchal family and the things are going on in their lives? Are we at all immune from these kinds of sins, particularly all of us men here? If you were in Jacob's predicament and you had a, a, a wife offering you another woman, I mean, would you be able to say no? Would you not be tempted by that? If you could get away with it, would you? Don't, I mean, don't answer that because, I mean, that's, our hearts are revealed here. Scripture doesn't give us nice stories to model our lives from. That would be the wrong way to interpret this text. This is not a, a nice story to model our lives from. The scriptures give us sometimes horrific accounts of real sinners in need of real grace. That, that's, that's, what, that's what's happening here. We're getting a, a horrific account of real people who need real grace. The heroes in our book are not heroes at all. And that's why we must finally consider that nothing but grace is the answer here for this story, but also for our lives. Nothing but grace is the answer. You know, one of our main reactions to, to this story is, is, is to be depressed and sad for the characters here. But more importantly, that, that I mean, this might make you lose hope. It's like, Lord, is there any hope for humanity at all? If this is our lot and we're still doing it today, who can save us? Who can help us? But we actually do begin to see a little bit of hope at the end of our text. And that's where I want to spend my last couple minutes. Uh, the, the hope not, doesn't come through the men and the women in the text. The hope actually comes through the, the circumstance. The hope is seen in the compassion of God who sees Leah as, as unloved and as unwanted. And he gives her, he gives her children. Okay, children that we can see her story through, but uh, ultimately a, a, a child that, that's going to bear the child of promise. We see hope particularly in Rachel's story. Look at verse 22 real quick. Then God remembered Rachel. All those years, all that skirming uh, and deceiving, Rachel has a baby. God, God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And he called and she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Obviously, at the end there, she's getting a little greedy. All right, I got one. God, give me another one. But God, I mean, this is the grace of God here unfolding here. And I've said this before. Uh, Again, we see real hope in the naming of Leah's sons. Really, all the sons born to these women, they're competing against each other. But we see hope after hope after hope coming after some some years of not just competition, but of of unloveliness, uh, of hatred, and of affliction. Particularly in Leah's case, we get the birth of Judah, her fourth son. She's pregnant, she's unloved, she feels no affection, but she bears bears the, the son who is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Isn't that cool? that God would grace her to that. This unaffectionate, unloving husband would, um, would bear through her um, eventually the Messiah. And this is no small thing. And 
I would tell you the one of the most momentous things that we can see in this text doesn't necessarily happen in the text. It happens through the text. And of course, that's the thing of Judah being born and ultimately Jesus being born. The one that binds up the brokenhearted, the one that heals the afflicted. Leah's savior would ultimately come through her fourth son, Judah. And the, the, the conclusion of the matter is nothing can fix this mess. Nothing but the grace of God. We read the Bible wrong sometimes. Uh, I mentioned already, Israel would look at this text, and because this is post-Exodus, they would look at it and be uh, horrified by what they're reading about their own lineage. They would uh, they would be put put off by the grotesque nature of the polygamy and the treatment of of the servant girls here. They would not be raising their hand, having uh, reveling and saying, "Hey, let's go mimic Jacob here." Uh, they would they would want to plug up their kids' ears, probably like some of you have wanted to plug up your ears based upon the, the, the context of the sermon here. This would, have, this would have been obscene to them, and they would have come up saying, Lord, nothing but your grace can fix this. There's nothing redeeming about these people, and they have no hope except that God would come in and, and clean up their lives. But their in this is the grace of God, and that's what we see happening. Only God in his grace is can can be there for them to work in their lives. And that's the good news in our text. It is that God comes and he works through their lives. He works through some sin, through some sadness and through some mess to bring about hope in this text. And the truth is God does the same thing for us. God is at work bringing Jesus to us in and among our own sinfulness and the messes of some of our lives, through our sorrow, through our sadness. This is not unlike the cross. Think about the cross and the disciples that were looking up at Jesus as he was first beaten, nailed to the cross, hung up between two thieves, and they're looking up saying, I mean, look at him. He's the expected Messiah, and he's all bloody. His body is marred. He doesn't even look human. There's blood everywhere. There's no way that good news can come out of this. Lord, what are you doing? And so Jesus died. He's put in a tomb, and that's Friday. And thank God Sunday comes, and the tomb was rolled away. There's probably a flash of light, and Jesus comes out of that tomb, and he lives and goes to glory. And, and, and so here's a t- the, the two pictures. You got the picture of the, the, the other side of the cross that looks like a mess, and there's no way that God is going to deliver. How, I mean, how can he get out of this? But then we have the other side of the cross. And we see the the absolute mercy and grace and goodness of God. We see the wisdom of God when we couldn't see it just from two two steps over on the other side. And that's what God is doing in this text. It's hard to see his wisdom through these circumstances. Sometimes it's hard to see God's wisdom through your own lives because, you know, we can live hard lives, can't we? But through all this mess, Leah gets Judah and I would Here's your hope. Through Judah, we all get Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your wisdom. Lord, what what we're learning here is that your ways aren't our ways and your thoughts aren't our thoughts. And sometimes some things happen in the Bible that make us scratch our heads and wonder what in the world is going on. And Lord, what are you doing to, um, in your sovereignty to make good come out of this? So thank you that we can, that, that firstly we see the, 
the mirror of scripture and it brings out the ugliness in the people of the Bible so that we would not look to them as heroes, but we would look to Jesus. But more importantly, thank you for the mirror of scripture that shows us our own sin and sorrow and the mess of our lives. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would really succumb to the invitation. Don't look away from the mirror. Let the word of God do its perfect work, that it would search our hearts and and Lord, that by your sovereign grace, you would bring us to faith and repentance and that God, your grace would, would lead us on. So thank you, Lord, for the grace of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that, that Jesus was born of a woman, but ultimately born under the law so that he could redeem us. And we praise him, our redeemer, our savior. And we give praise and I pray that in Jesus' name.